0: jay chataway and you're listening to the great big beautiful podcast
1: Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at uh, www.thegbbpodcast.com and also on Facebook and Twitter at The GBB Podcast. Uh, Thanks for coming back. Uh, This week we are continuing our Star Trek marathon, our deep dive oral history look into the composers and music of televised Trek. A couple weeks ago we brought you the first episode with Jay Chataway. Um, This week, I am just thrilled to share with you guys my conversation with Dennis McCarthy. Dennis is the only composer, the only person, probably the only person in any capacity uh, on Star Trek to have worked on all 25 seasons of the four shows that ran more or less consecutively. The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. So from 1987 till about 2005, I think it was, when Enterprise uh, wrapped up, that was 25 seasons of television across those four shows, and Dennis McCarthy worked on every single season for those shows. And I, I would be surprised if there was another person, maybe, maybe one or two of the directors, the writers, but certainly they didn't have the, uh, the, the output that Dennis had. I mean, Dennis worked, I'm just going to throw some numbers at you, he worked on 88 episodes of the, the Next Generation, 77 of DS9, 65 of Voyager, and 30 of Enterprise. He, the, the, the work that he put, turned out for Star Trek is just unparalleled. He did the first and last episodes of TNG, DS9, and Enterprise. So he was able to take those three shows completely full circle. If you listened to my conversation with Jay Chataway from a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that he did the first and last episodes of Voyager. So only those two guys have been able to do that so far, to, to, to uh, take a show full circle. Dennis McCarthy also wrote the Deep Space Nine theme, uh, in my opinion, um, might be one of the best might be the best theme uh, to to any of the Star Trek shows. I just love the DS9 theme. He won an Emmy for that. And he also is the only guy to have made the jump from TV to film. He scored the soundtrack for Star Trek Generations which, if you're unfamiliar, was the, um, the crossover movie which had uh, some of the original series cast and all of the next gen cast. It's the Spoiler alert. It's the one where um Captain Kirk dies. Uh but Dennis McCarthy has been I mean all of this is just just scraping the top of the tip of the iceberg here. I mean, he, his career is is vast. It's not only Star Trek. Star Trek is obviously a huge chunk of what of what he did in his career. But he, he wrote for a lot of other shows. He wrote for Dynasty. He wrote for MacGyver. He wrote for Parker Lewis Can't Lose. And a lot of these shows he was doing at the same time as Star Trek because he was done on Star Trek for 18 years, which is which is just phenomenal. So if you liked my uh, conversation with Jay Chataway, you're in for more of the same. This is a great conversation. Come back in future weeks, probably next week and the week following. I'm going to bring you my conversation with Ron Jones and then with Jeff Russo. Uh, Ron Jones worked on the first four seasons of The Next Generation, and Jeff Russo is the current composer for Star Trek Discovery. So I think Taken as a whole, all four of these episodes together, is, like I said at the top, is a really nice deep dive oral history into Star Trek music. So enjoy, settle in, and you're in for a great conversation. Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's just—it's just a thrill to have you here. So i am real—I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure, believe
1: me. Um, I yeah. wanted to uh, start where I start a lot of these things, and, and just curious—did you come from a musical family?
0: Yeah, actually, I did. My my dad would sing. Uh, you know, he would sing in La Boheme, regional theaters, and stuff like that, and played four string giant ukulele like guitar wow my mom uh played piano by ear also sang uh but they were not in the music business per se other than a little fun on the weekends
1: yeah so um i know when a lot of people go into sort of creative pursuits whether it's writing or art or music uh it's it's the parents of those people tend to you know not be in a particularly comfortable situation because you know they they want their kids to succeed and the arts is never a, a sure thing so how much um like how much support did you get i mean maybe you got more than most because your parents were already sort of um comfortable with music and they were musicians themselves to a certain extent
0: well, as I say, oh, that that were the case. But uh, <laughs> no, they were absolutely dead set against it. Really? And yeah, they. my dad wanted me to be an engineer at Lockheed or Litton Industries, uh, <clears throat> and uh, he was in the aerospace industry himself. And so when I went to school, uh, I basically took engineering and math and those kind of things. And never took any music until the 11th grade when I got booted off the basketball team because I couldn't A, dribble, B, shoot, <laughs> C, walk and shoot gum. All the important and, things. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so the gym coach said, well, look, about the only thing I can throw you because it was the last period, you know how sports was in high school. Yeah. He said, there's a, there's a beginning piano class. Well, I'd been playing since I was four. And so I was uh, not bad, you know, so... He asked the class to play, so everybody gets up and does, you know, heart and soul or chopsticks, and I did Chopin's, you know, revolutionary etude, 30% <laughs> higher tempo, and he was enraged because they hadn't had a pianist for the choir for a semester. So I was thrown into the music business, met some people, and uh, and it went from there.
1: Wow. So um, uh, was the piano your first instrument?
0: Yeah, and to be honest, it's pretty, I, I play some pretty terrible country fiddle uh very bad harmonica uh, you know enough guitar to get in trouble <laughs> and a stand-up bass if somebody puts a gun to my head so that's about it it's piano beginning and, and still at it
1: yeah so at what point though did your parents uh and those around you finally sort of relent and say well maybe he's got a knack for this and we should support him
0: well i went out with some rock and roll bands the Hondells was one there keyboard player got drafted so I jumped into that and I met Glenn Campbell mm. through that because he was a session player uh, brilliant brilliant man there's been a So what we did is Gwen I was still going to college, I don't know. I had six majors, 150 units, no degree. <laughs> and um, he, he said, well, I'm going to go out. Uh, you know, I got this song on my mind that looks like it's going to do good. And got another one that's going to come out pretty soon by the time I get to Phoenix, which also is looking good. So he, I said, well, how much you pay? He said $28.50 a night. And I said, "Great, I'm gone." So I quit school. Oh no! <laughs> went out on the went on the road with Glenn. So you can imagine my parents' response to oh. that. Now, by this time, I was you know I was a little older, so you know maybe just peeking into my twenties. And um, I I went out with Glenn. Went out for nine years, forty two weeks a year on on our biggest years, I and mean, wow. he was huge, yeah.
2: Star.
0: And my parents were still not happy until <laughs> one day they did a review of Glenn. Playing at Carnegie Hall, and they mentioned my name in the Wall Street Journal. So oh, from that point, that on, did I, it. Was, I was, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The light, the light shone once again. You know, so uh, it, it took it, but it took that long.
1: Wow. You know? So what led you into composing?
0: Well, interesting story. At least I think it is, but of course I'm prejudiced. You're biased, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So Glenn turns to the band one day, and this is towards the first couple of years, and he says, "You know we're starting to play huge venues and and the unions are saying we need to use orchestras, and I have recording charts, but you know nothing specialized for the act so anyhow uh, so he turns to the band, it's me, uh, Bob the drummer, Larry McNew, the banjo player, Bill Graham the bass player, myself, and says, "Any of you guys know how to read how to write arrangements?" and we all just look at him like you know with the trout look and <laughs> Then he said, Well, any of you you know, guys and I'll clean it up, uh, know how to know how to how to read music. And I, I said, Well, I can read music. And he said, Good, you're the arranger <laughs> So I went out and bought Van Alexander's book How to Arrange and uh, started started just learning on the road. You know, I'd write an arrangement for, you know, like the Beatles yesterday or whatever, throw it on a stand. And then I'd go to the musicians after the show. i say, well, how was my arrangement? They'd all say, oh, great. i say, no, cut the crap. How was my arrangement? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> and, I'd say, and I'd say, well, why? Well, you know, he wrote a, a slur over the violins. It runs four bars at a 60-beat-per-minute at a click. He said, we don't have bows that are 12 feet long. Mm. So, you know, you have to know your instruments better. And, you know, I mean, all, every, pretty much most of the stuff I learned came from the cats on the road. Because they're the ones playing the instrument, and they're just fabulous. They're just great. Yeah. And then Glenn, of course, got his TV show, The Good Time Hour, and uh, Marty Page was a music director. And so I became the rehearsal pianist, which is a long story, which I won't bore you with. So I, I became the rehearsal pianist on the show, which is like, I mean, you're in the fire. Yeah, you know, Liza Manelli comes and throws some chart that looks like somebody filled up a shotgun with ink and blew it on a piece <laughs> of score paper, and you need to sight read it. So, you know, it was kind of trial by fire. And uh, so Marty Pakes is a great arranger, great writer, and he kind of took me by the hand and said, here, I want you to write a chart for the show. And I said, well, it'll be my first chart for anything like this. And he said, well... It's, it's not anybody of course ray charles oh, so <laughs> so that's my first chart and i wrote it out and marty corrected it like a like a good uh, mandarin slash uh, school teacher wow you know, said so you have to write transpose you cannot write in concert because it's your job to do that et cetera et cetera yeah so then i met nelson riddle and uh you know worked with him off and on and learned i learned from all these great guys i did alex north for 2 years i worked as his orchestrator when he was not healthy and, and um so i did wise blood with him and a couple other things so uh you know the, my education was just by learn by doing
1: that's amazing so and, you were legitimately self-taught
0: yeah with a lot of help
1: with a lot of help and, but trial oh, by fire
0: yeah. oh yeah one quick uh, so i'm working on the glenn campbell show milt bernhardt Trombonist who did, I got you. You know, I got you under my skin for Sinatra. Mm-hmm. He was a trombone soloist on that. So, anyhow, uh, I wrote a chart, and uh, the way Marty told me to write it, and then he says, Dennis, come over here. And I said, over there, he said, uh, you know, you've written me 32 bars of whole notes on the trombone. <laughs> and and he said, what do you think I am, an exploit at deleted Hammond B3 organ? I <laughs> said, He said, And here's what he said. He said, I want you to go buy a brass instrument of any sort. I don't care what it is. And in a month, you come back and play me 32 bars of whole notes. (laughs) So I went out and got a French horn and played played 32 bars of whole notes and practically passed out. (laughs) It it was really, really... But that was my education. Chris Lee, Tom Scott with the Woodwind section, Mike Lang on piano. It just magnificent magnificent players and uh
1: go ahead sorry no i was gonna say there's probably no better way to learn the instruments like you were saying i mean just you were literally literally learning by doing and if you wrote something for an instrument that was impossible or very very difficult i'm sure those musicians were only too happy to tell you
0: oh they did yeah (laughs) (laughs) and I, i i learned I wasn't the world's fastest learner, but I was pretty quick. So, uh, so it was really it was what a great way to to learn though. I mean, because it was so satisfying to yeah. write big charts and like for symphonies, you know, and uh, big symphony for Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and uh, the East Room with Nixon and that kind of stuff. I mean, we really, you know, what a, what a wonderful experiences.
1: So was, was and, writing for film and television, was that always something that was sort of like on your horizon? You were aiming toward that or was it, was it? I never thought just, about it. Really? You just wanted to do what you were doing, performing and writing for musicians in that, in the moment.
0: Yeah. And street racing. Yeah.
1: You
0: know? so I'm, I'm <laughs> just kind of, just kind of straight ahead, you know, you know, running around here, stumbling around, having fun. But uh, what happened with that is I did somehow, Warner Brothers, Dick Harris, not theirs, so the H Dick with an H, uh, well, they were doing a spin off of Dukes of Hazard, mm-hmm. And uh, I was doing, I was doing the Monte Carlo show at Monaco for 10 straight weeks, but the Monaco Grand, or Monte Carlo Grand Prix hit, so we had to leave. And I said, well, I'm going to fly back because I got a call from Warner Brothers. And I'd never done anything like this in my life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I've been arranging, I wrote 900 arrangements for Glenn over those years. Jeez. But, uh, so he says, here's the deal. He says, you obviously know country, but you obviously know how to write for brass also. Mm-hmm. So let's do this show the way Dukes of Hazzard is, but add some brass for a little bit of a different flavor. And of course, I am so I was so used from all those years to writing at 100 miles an hour. I mean, you know, Glenn would come to a rehearsal at five in the afternoon and say, I want to do a song that I just heard on the radio on the show tonight. You know, boom, mm.
2: I have
0: to write the chart for everybody. So I did the chart and banged out and they were like what the I said yeah that's the way I was trained and uh, so here comes V now in the meantime I'd done some stuff at Disney I was starting to get work there uh, and I did V comes along it was uh, the final battle Mm -hmm. it was already scored it was nine days to air and they wanted the score to be more orchestral more dramatic and so Dick says well I know Dennis is about the only guy who can write that fast don't know if he's any damn good but at least he can write fast (laughs) (laughs) so So I went and did that thing, and I wrote an hour and six minutes of music for a sixty-piece orchestra, Gee. and and uh, we we made it. I mean, we
1: got there. And that you and said that was so nine days before. You nine had days I mean, so, before so a- how a- long did you have?
0: Oh, to write the hour and six minutes, maybe three days. Wow. Maybe maybe four. I mean, it's it's a, it's a ways back yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it was fast, and so. I ended up doing a couple of the new Twilight zones also, and then here comes Star Trek, mm-hmm. and uh, Rick Berman, Bob Justman call me in, and they say we want you to put Jerry's wonderful theme together with the horn intro, you know, Sandy's, uh horn intro.
2: Mm-hmm. So I said
0: okay, went home and tried to find a synthesizer and built this thing. And uh, they said okay, you're on. My my agents at the time said don't take it; it's a syndicated show. And I said no, nah, something feels good about this. It's Kind of, kind of like when I dropped out of college with Wayne <laughs> Colby. Yeah. You know, it just felt like the right thing, of, thing to do. <laughs> yeah, normally if the door of opportunity opens, I can kick it shut. You know, <laughs> these are two times when I didn't. But uh, so I did the first one, and uh, just I did, I don't know, 350, 360 of them over the 18-year period. Yeah. And uh, I, I evolved as the show went along, and the producers evolved. I mean, originally, and I'm sure Ron and Jay, you uh, in on this, they did not want percussion. Yeah, you know, and and matter of fact, one of the producers said, "I don't want to hear any music that manipulates my emotions." I said well, okay. Uh, very nice guy, otherwise. <laughs> so, anyhow, uh, and all of a sudden, as the years progressed, and we got into percussion and things, and more uh, atonal, and you know, really had a great time pushing the envelope all the time. Yeah, and so- uh, all three of us, Rod and Jay and myself. Um, kind of went that route so it was i mean what a what a wonderful run
1: yeah no doubt well what was your familiarity with star trek before you before you know bob justman and, and rick berman came to you i mean were, were you a fan or were you just like oh that nope. was that was that show no, i remember I, from the 60s yeah
0: i just kind of you know i mean i was busy doing other stuff we had three kids patty and i and yeah. uh, you know that took precedence and i i maybe seen a couple of star treks and i mean seriously maybe two and I, I thought it was fine. I mean it was certainly nothing negative. It just just wasn't on my plate. Yeah. And uh then I got into this and really you know, just ended up, of course the next generation cast was wonderful people. We'd go out to lunch now and then or dinners and have a lot of fun, you know, it was really a family unit. Yeah. So so I just learned a lot and uh you know, I, I studied and talked to people, called friends and said, Hey, you know, what do you think? Hey, how about a French word? you know, this and et cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> So, so, always a nice little community here
1: when uh, when you came on or when they approached you for The Next Generation you said that they already had in mind that they were going to be using um, the Jerry Goldsmith theme what, do you know, was there ever any discussion or were you involved in any discussions about a new theme or were they just set on using that one from the beginning
0: no I, I never questioned it yeah um, and uh, because they wanted Jerry and I said you know like I said, well, if that's what they want, that's what they'll get. I did mm-hmm. write a theme of, I call it the Picard theme, for you because I thought maybe they'd want to have some. I had done Dynasties and Colby's and a Love Boat or two. Mm-hmm. So those shows were heavily uh, motif-driven. And so here comes Star Trek, and I thought, well, you know, maybe a nice little motif for, uh, for Patrick Stewart. So I wrote this piece, I think it's a floating around the CD somewhere. I used it, and they liked it, and then about three shows later, I used it again, and they said, wait a minute, we've already heard that. Mm. And I said, yeah. And they said, don't do that again. Oh. <laughs> as, as a matter of fact, once I used the Jerry's theme, da, as a transition in space. Yeah. And the talk back from the booth said, uh, we don't do that around here.
1: Yeah. No, it, else. it was very different. I mean, and I know this is, you know this, obviously, but, you know, the, the original um reused a lot of the same music again and again and again and when you came to next gen it was um there were no themes and there were no no there's nothing you can hum during the show i mean there was the main theme the credits great and then the end credits okay but during the show like there was no there was no music that you could like hang on to as an audience you know there was nothing that like oh okay i know what's going to happen now
0: yeah you couldn't hang your head on anything no And, and that is what they wanted so i uh you know, I adapted. What I did is I developed a severe case of musical Alzheimer's. Mm. So I'd write a show and absolutely forget by the time I wrote the next one, I'd just start from scratch, open the piano lid, and play middle C and see where it went.
1: Yeah. I, aside oh, yeah. from from not having themes or, you know, just sort of I hate to say they wanted it to just be the background. But I mean, did you did you have freedom with what you could do within those confines or did they was there a lot of handholding? <laughs>
0: You, you, yeah, and what what the way it would work is, uh, from being on the road all those years and stuff, you you know you learn to move fast, and so I would write what I wanted, go to the session, uh, get hit upside the head, and change it on the spot, and uh, then move on to the next cue, and and not you couldn't you couldn't pin your ego on anything you wrote, yeah. because you'd only end up being you know frustrated, so you walk in there, park your ego at the door, do the job have fun, you know, hang with the musicians, go out for a drink afterwards and see if you can write things that are totally unplayable. (laughs) 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 So, uh, I mean, I I, I don't mean to make light of it, but it was like, uh, you know, it really, unlike know, dynasties and MacGyver's, I did MacGyver for almost seven years. uh, You know, music was, I I don't want to say it was relegated to the back row, but it kind of was, you know, There are so many times you do a cue and you'd be really happy with it and watch the show and say, I thought there was music here.
1: Yeah. Was that difficult for you, like creatively, especially because you were writing for, you know, you were arranging for bands and orchestras and then you were writing for shows that had heavy themes. And and then suddenly you're just you're, you're, you're writing music, but it's not being pushed to the forefront of the of the show at all.
0: You know, for me, a, a number of things. First of all, it was a challenge which I relished. Yeah, I loved to see if, if, a what I could get away with, or b if I could write things that I'd never thought of before. You know, and see and see how it worked. I mean, for me, it was like it was like going to school. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was, I'm home. You know, after nine years on the road with Glenn and a couple of years of rock bands before that, boy, you mm-hmm. know, it's a lot more fun than going over to Vietnam doing USO, which I did. <laughs>
1: So, was there was so, there a lot of uh, collaboration, maybe not actual creative collaboration, but did you and Jay and Ron ever just sort of sit down and hash out ideas or say, what, what, what direction are you going in? You know, that
0: that's something we should have done.
1: Yeah. And
0: I, I, I regret that we, we never did, ever. Um, it wasn't like Dynasty where Pete Myers and Bill Conti, you know, well, Bill was the main thematic composer and Pete Myers did the bulk of the episodes. I Pete and I would talk on the phone all the time. We'd go out to dinner and just talk, you know, Dynasty and Colbys, mm-hmm. and you know, and and uh, horse racers, you know, whatever. But uh, with Star Trek, it never happened. Really, and I don't, I don't know if it was on purpose or just everybody kind of had their own separate life. Huh. Interesting. Maybe maybe it was maybe it was everybody's way of dealing with the demons. It, it was a tough show. A lot of people. You know, really had problems other composers would come in and uh work on the show, and boy, they were shocked. Really? What do you mean I can't use a snare? What do you mean I can't use a bass drummer or tim- <laughs> What? You know, and uh, I remember one time, uh John Debney, who's a wonderful guy, I do love John dearly. Yeah, well, plus, he lives here, he's right here in Burbank. Uh, but he got, he called to do one of the shows, and I called him up, and I said, John, I said, "Seems how we are pals. You and I need to go out for a drink and talk about this." <laughs> and so I told him everything. I said, "Here's what to expect, and here's what's going to happen. And if they want to change, it's like jump how high, you know." Yeah. And and boy, he took me at my word and did a wonderful job. And they asked him back to do some more. But by that time, he'd taken off like a, a skyrocket. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I think he did two episodes and did a really fine job. But uh, there was a, another composer who I I think I sat down with him, but uh, didn't pay attention, and we'll just leave it at that. He
1: okay. You know, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I, I didn't listen. Didn't listen to the warnings. He, he did
0: not listen, and they ended up tossing about a third of the score, and just putting my stuff in there. You know, tra- yeah. track my stuff in there.
1: Yeah. It must have been. I mean, you say that it was a creative challenge, but it must have been one that. You welcomed because if you were there for what almost twenty years, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, and
0: I mean, what an opportunity! Six French horns just sitting in front of you, <laughs> and uh, all those strings and and my woodwind section was basically jazz guys. It was Pete Chrisley, the original tenor sax soloist off the Doc Severinsen Tonight Show band. Sip uh, Gene Cipriano from Fred Seldon, who used to work with Don Ellis and everybody else. So I and I, I loved getting the jazz guys in there. Chuck Berghofer on Upright bass. He's
2: got
0: it. these boots are made for walking. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the great jazz bassists of all time, Ralph Humphreys on drums. Uh, you know, he's got Jim Cox on piano, Tom Rainier. Uh, it's just stars. All these guys, and they brought their jazz thinking in with them. Even though we weren't doing jazz, they were thinking improvisationally.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so when when I'd write something, they'd say to themselves, uh, "He really means this."
1: Okay. They could. They could. And they I could both, read into your mind, into your thinking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you know, Bob Finley, my my world's favorite trumpet player. You know, I'd, I'd look at the score as I'm conducting along, and I go, "Oh, nuts! Here comes a clam," and, and we would go through it, and it wasn't a clam. And Bob said, "I knew what you wanted. That <laughs> wasn't. It wasn't that note." <laughs> so, it's uh, good did, to work good real, to
1: work with professionals, right?
0: Oh yeah, They're fantastic! I miss them. I, I miss the whole. Well, I miss the whole thing.
1: Yeah, you know? it was a wonderful
0: run between MacGyver and Star Trek. I was at uh, Paramount for twenty five years.
1: Yeah, well, I was good. I actually, I was going to ask you about that because during the height of of Star Trek, at least Next Generation, you were not just exclusive to Star Trek. You were writing on a number of other shows, and, including, you know, like you said, MacGyver. And I think I saw what Parker Lewis can't lose. You wrote seventy episodes or something like that oh yeah how did yeah. you how did you juggle all that at the same time well just you know
0: from being on the road I suppose because you know there would be nights when you you know one of us had to drive the bus whoever was the least tired I just cleaned that up uh, you know would be the bus driver yeah and you'd get into the next town at five in the morning and you'd have to rehearse by noon and do a show or two pack it up you know hopefully the next town wasn't more than a hundred miles away I mean it was
1: it was uh, a
0: grind, and, and this to me is like, you know, you've got family and, uh, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. The TV works all the time. Piano's here. I like the piano. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's like Easy Street comparatively, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Nothing. I mean, nothing compares to, to Life on the Road the way we did it. Yeah. With, with Glenn, it was good. It was pretty, it was first class, you know what I mean?
1: But it's still, it's still, it's still on the road. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So how much of a shift was it then? I mean, it sounds like working on any show, but maybe Next Gen within those creative confines was even more so pretty frantic. You know, you didn't have that much time to turn around, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes worth of music for every every episode. How much of a shift was it to go from that to working on Generations, the film, where you had... uh, I'm assuming more time, bigger budget, and the sound was noticeably more lush and I guess quote unquote cinematic, if you if you will. Yeah, yeah,
0: it was. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, well, f- first of all, I was working with you know with film, the director takes precedence. Mm-hmm. Uh, TV is, is producer driven. Uh, so David Carson was a director, of course. Rick was uh, producing, and, uh, but but David had a, he really wanted it to be big. And cinematic to yeah. you know that's a great term for it, uh, and not just be wallpaper. Yeah. So it so certainly was I not. Just, <laughs> no, I just went for it. I had a great time. the, the see i mean the, the last the last scene with shatner running across the rocks before he dies that was you know that was done like 17 days ahead of release or something i can't remember the exact spelling, but i mean that was a panic score yeah as a matter of fact there's four bars as Picard, if not me, shatner's running across you know the, the rocks there the barren rocks mm-hmm. but for some reason uh I forgot to write percussion in four bars, and it sounds like the baby elephant walk for
1: four bars. I <laughs> I'm going to go have to go back and watch that now.
0: Yes, towards the end there, but uh, yeah, it was it was basically I was given permission in essence to go apeshit. Yeah, which I did, and uh, the, you know the hardest part of that film for me was the scene, The Dream, you know, on the Nexus, where he starts off with a merry-go-round, Picard. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got got the family because uh, Steve Rowe, the brilliant film editor, music editor, I'm sorry, had put in Mahler's fifth, The Adagiato, which is this beautiful, oh, heart-wrenching piece. And he scored it with that. And I attempted with that. And I listened to that, and I said, oh, my God, how am I going to get that out of my head? Yeah. And uh, so I, I just told myself, self, just do a 180. And so I, I went. I mean, the, the Mahler piece is tonal. It shifts from major to minor a lot. It's beautiful. Like, God, it's heart wrenching. So I did like this, uh, almost a Phil Spector wall of sound. You know, the LA Master Chorale singing and, mm-hmm. and the hundred piece or eighty piece orchestra, mm-hmm. and very tonal. people didn't like it you know, oh. i'll be honest with you i had a couple of reviewers that said "Ugh, sounded like a prel shampoo bottle you oh, oh, are you
1: kidding on. me you know and so
0: hard man my wife's father had died the, the night that i wrote it oh so no. yeah and <laughs> so i mean it's you know it, it, it for me it was an elegy to him yeah and and to have somebody slime it i just you know i was offended i yeah. don't offend easy but that offended me
1: yeah no that's right it was kind of a side that score i mean that soundtrack to that film it it has such a a special place for me and i don't and i can't pin my i can't put my finger on why you know i mean it's not my favorite star trek movie but it is one of my favorite star trek soundtracks um thank you and i think i think i think it's largely because of your theme um I think that you know the opening, the uh, the prelude, and the opening theme for that film is just so beautiful, and it's so um, I can't think of the right word for it now, but it's so perfect for that cast, you know. And yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess what I'm asking is noticeably absent from that movie is that goldsmith theme that was in every episode. So, I mean, what, yeah. what led to that? What led to, you know, we're making the jump to the big screen. We need a new theme. We're going to abandon, not abandon, but we're going to leave behind this, this iconic theme that we've carried through the show for seven seasons. A hundred no, yeah. years. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, not quite, but uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, that was, uh,
1: I believe, if memory
0: serves, it was David David Carson, the director,
2: mm-hmm. who
0: said, "I don't want, I don't want that." And I said, "Well, uh, let him let me at least in one or two spots put in the the uh, dun, da 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 because that is,
1: you and know, if we don't do that, yeah. the fans are going to come to my house with pitchforks." <laughs> well, Which they did. They did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I have to, and I mean. I to my ear now they're not obviously the same, uh, but to my ear I do hear familiarity and and some similarities between your generation's theme and the Deep Space Nine theme. Was that intentional on your part, or was it just because they were written around the same time?
0: Yeah, and and I think it's just it's just kind of what I
1: like. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of uh,
0: I, I love the I love the trumpet, you know, French horns, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just. Uh, you know, I just I just wrote a piece for another show just about uh, one day ago, and I realized, oh my God, it's the B theme. Oh no! <laughs> so, <laughs> so whoops, changed. <laughs> so, well, one time I got to tell you, I was doing a dynasty session, big orchestra, and I kicked it off, and I had to write the score in a rush. I mean, you had. Very short amount of time. Nothing, as, nothing was as tough as MacGyver. But so here's the time. See, so I'm up there. I you know, say, OK, boys, here goes one, two, three, four. First four bars. And we just we had to take a 10. We were all laughing so hard. I had unconsciously written Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Without the piano. I was like, I, oh, my God. <laughs> I have to
1: imagine that probably happens more often than people will admit, though. Right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. I actually, I was kind of aware because David liked the Deep Space Nine theme and the way that it worked. So I thought, okay, I like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a lot easier when somebody comes up and says, you know, that DS9 theme, don't ever do anything like that. Don't ever do that.
1: Yeah. No, gosh, I mean, I, and I'm not fawning praise on you just because you're on the phone, but I mean, of all of the Star Trek shows, Deep Space Mind, I think, over the years, has become my favorite, and that theme is my favorite theme, so I'm just putting oh, that well, out Oh, thank
0: there. you. <laughs> yeah, well, I love it, and that's, that was interesting, because Jerry was contacted to do it, but uh, I don't know if it was workload, or if, uh, they didn't offer him, I think, what it was. Literally, they, they were being a little cheap. Really, and of course, I'm cheap. You know? <laughs> I hell, like I do it for free. I don't care. You know, sit so well, in front of an orchestra. I'll do it for nothing.
1: So, I mean, Deep Space Nine was, as a show, it was this departure for Star Trek at the time. It took it took the franchise in a very different direction. Um, yeah. And your theme definitely did that. When you compare the Next Gen theme and your DS9 theme, it's they're very, very different. What kind of direction, if you remember, what kind of direction did you get before you sat down to work on that show?
0: Well, that was with, with Rick Berman. And I, he and I talked about it uh, at length. And his basic thing was, he said, he showed me the mock-up of what the visuals were going to be for the main title. And he says, this is an extremely lonely place out here. And it's going to be more of psychological darkness that we've had in the other shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, next generation. And uh, so I want the theme to, to say this, I want the theme to say, we are alone. And uh, if you get a flat tire, it's going to be quite a while before the auto club comes out to fix your spaceship. <laughs> and uh, so that, well, he didn't say that. I just knew no, that. But, was... <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I just went off of that. And I thought, what's, what's lonelier than a, a trumpet player with a part that he's, hoping he doesn't blow yeah (laughs) so so that's what I did I just uh, you know kept it as simple as I could and um, you know I didn't want it matter of fact I I was not thrilled too much when I did redo on the fourth season and had to put more life in action I thought well that kind of negates what we're shooting for here but you know it's a game
1: actually where i was going to go next is why did it change was it just for an, the longer credit sequence no
0: they i think what it was is they thought the show was evolving into where there's more people there's more stuff going on uh it's not as dark although it was it was a pretty dark show at the time yeah but it's like there's there's more personalities being uh you know used in the show and so they wanted to just have a little more a little bit more life to it And i said okay so the trombone's moving up, you know, fifth, 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 back down a fifth. You know that uh, it, it wasn't my favorite thing to do to a piece of music, but you know it's like uh, you're a finished carpenter, and somebody says, you know, I want my uh, I want my uh, closet to be done in naughty pine, and you say, well, it should be done in oak or teak or something, and then the person says, yeah, but then I won't pay. You say, well, okay, fine,
1: <laughs> naughty pine it is. <laughs> well, do it your way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you had the opportunity, um, you know, through those 18 years of amazing experiences, you got to bookend three of the series. Um, Next Gen DS9 Enterprise, you wrote the first and last episodes. What goes through your mind, both, I guess, musically, thematically, um, logistically? What goes through your mind when it comes time to sort of bring that show full circle? Uh, It's very satisfying.
0: There's sadness, of course, since you hate to see the series end, and of course, with Scott Bakula's, it was really, uh, you know, it was really sad because mm-hmm. uh, we were hoping to go the run, and it just the show started off with a huge audience, and it just kept diminishing. And it, why I don't know, to be honest with you, but uh, I think I think the show may have devolved in some way or another that the fans are not happy with, or maybe it was just fatigue. Yeah, you know, oh my God, another Star Trek. Who yeah. knows? You know, yeah. I mean, I don't that that one was set and um you know because that was the last i would see of those that giant orchestra yeah. now we'd have 50 60 guys for every episode you know sometimes 40s mm-hmm. but usually in the 50s yeah so it was it was a wonderful wonderful experience and uh, i was truly blessed to be able to do it, it to be a part of it
1: yeah um you know next gen um reintroduced star trek to television so it I guess it kind of made sense that the music, quote unquote, played it safe. You know, they didn't want to they didn't want the music to stand out or they didn't want to take huge risks. Um, DS9 was DS9 was a bit more of a gamble, so they could take risks in every every corner of the show. Um, What was it like moving over to Voyager? What kind of environment was that to work in?
0: Was, uh, for me, it felt it was kind of like backing into Next Generation again. Really? It was. It was to me. Well, well, just from the way I had to think, it was, it was closer in attitude to Next Generation and the original Shatner series than Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, by this time, however, we were we were given permission to be a, a little bolder. Yeah. So we could we could bring the percussion in. Uh, The big brass stabs and all that kind of stuff, moving strings, Um, and it was it was a it was a good experience. Then Scott Bakula's show, uh, the Enterprise. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. Um, that was an interesting one because about the show was about to start. You know, we were probably a month out, and I get the phone call from my buddy Peter Lawrence in there, uh, one of the producers. Well, Dennis, we've decided to make a change in the music. Well, what's the next? line thank you very much yeah, for your thank value you for your time service here's a gold watch <laughs> uh, or or you know maybe uh rhinestones and he said so come on in and let's talk about it i'm like whoa uh-huh. that had never happened before yeah. and, he went and he said let's let's uh let's get this updated let's make it really percussion Let's. i want to hear some synthesizers i want to hear some stuff i still with the orchestra." So I ended up with Kevin Kiner. He and I worked together on that show because he was a great, it's, he is a great synthesizer guy and a good composure in his own right. And so basically I would write the cues. He'd take it over to his place, his studio at home, and uh, do a synth demo you know, of the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing was a demo, but adding in his knowledge of synthesizers and mm-hmm. synthesized percussion. So we would have really um, some amazing... Uh, it was a great combination, he and I, and yeah. uh, we really got along well. And it was, it was great. But but uh, I keep laughing about the, the phone call from from Peter. You know, yeah. it's not quite like what I did. I did Dawson's Creek one year, and the reason they brought me in was that the music they they would run six or seven songs through that show, mm-hmm. and uh, and they, I got a call from the music uh, supervisor, who told me he said. Uh, they're complaining the music score sounds like the songs. And I said, well, that's because the tracks are all coming out of the same boxes. <laughs> Your score is being done in a box, and you, all these songs are being done out of a box, and you throw a singer on it. I said, you have to get a real orchestra. Yeah. And he said, well, we can't afford that. I said, well, yes, you can. And he said, how? He said, I'll just take basically what I'm paid and split it up with the guys. You know, So I got an 18-piece orchestra, did it for a year. Wow. And, of course, it, it did what it was supposed to do. You know, it sounded different. All of a sudden, there was moving air. You know, I had a real cellist, a real bass, real, you know, real guitars, all that stuff. Last uh, recording, the last recording session, years up, a new producer comes in, sees you, takes one looking, turns the other guy and says, Well, he's too old. Oh. <laughs> and that was it.
2: Oh, my that God. That was
0: it. I laughed. I mean, I was tired of driving down to Bundy and Vicente anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it was, brutal, it, though. It was, oh, it was brutal. <laughs> uh, and, uh,
1: he, he did me a
0: favor; got me out of that show.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. um, I want another question about Voyager. Um, so Goldsmith came back for the theme on that one. Was that always the plan? Did they just finally find the budget for him, or did you have an opportunity to write a theme? No, no, it was it was Jerry from the outset.
0: Yeah, which is gotta love him. I mean, Jerry was great. I he is. I tell my students, I say he's the uh, he's my favorite co- uh, film composer. Ever, Thomas Newman close second,
2: but
0: uh, you know his originality and everything else. I mean, Alex North was great, also. I mean, I shouldn't even say who's my favorite composer. (laughs) I like most of the guys. Period.
1: Yeah. So, Um, (laughs) you, uh, I understand, unless I I heard this wrong, the end credits for Enterprise was actually the theme you wrote for the show.
0: great stuff is is not using, you know, a song. I I didn't like it.
1: You're not alone. You you weren't alone.
0: God in heaven. (laughs) So here's here's this song, and it's like, you know, so I I wrote a theme. I thought, what the hell? So it turns out that uh, Paramount would not allow, or the network, whoever it was, a vocal as the end credit. Okay. So they called me up and said, well, do you mind if we use yours? I said, of course I don't mind. (laughs) Go for it. So that's, that's how
1: that came to be. That was your stab at the main credits, thinking that like hopefully yeah. somebody up there will come to their senses and get rid of that song, and then you'll have, you'll be the savior.
0: <laughs> but, well, it didn't quite work that way, but what else can
1: you do? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know, it's... I never watched Enterprise when it was on you know, the first run, it, but even at the time, all I kept hearing was about this song, this song. And it was years, I think, until I finally heard it. And I think... The first time I heard it, I thought it was a joke. And I was like, there's no way this show ran for several seasons with this, right? Oh, it, yeah. yeah. No, it, it didn't no. make any sense. No. And it wasn't... Um, the, I mean, it wasn't original, you know? It didn't... Seem... No, it was from... Uh, what, what was that movie? Patch Adams. Movie? <laughs> Thank
0: you. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I love... T- take the song out of it. I think the, the credit sequence of that show is great. where you're Showing all the footage of exploration getting to space. I think it's a beautiful uh opening sequence to a show i just think it demanded better music
0: yeah exactly you're really good and uh so i was i was happy to do that you know have that little crack at that theme yeah (laughs) what could have been right (laughs) yeah well can't can't win them all like
1: no can't win them all i saw that you um have done music for a couple uh fan productions like star trek fan films and series no, um, oh, those were fun. Yeah, yeah. Wh- what I mean, what is it about Star Trek that keeps bringing you back to that? Well, they call me. Yeah, <laughs> they they have money. <laughs>
0: That's a, always a good start. But uh well, not necessarily the money, but like one of them I did for free. I just, you know, they didn't really have a lot of money. Yeah. And I said, you know, look, uh, spend the money somewhere else. I'll, I I'll, I'll just, I just want to have some fun with with my computers. Oh. So that's, so you know, I mean, it's, it's, you pay it back every now and then. Sure. Cool.
1: I have to imagine those, you know, fan films and those—they're entirely different experiences than working on, you know, like like a show or a film. I mean, oh yeah,
0: and of course it's all synthesizer. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting to do, but you know, I miss the guys. I Mm. miss the hang. Yeah. And uh, you know, so you have to go out to see a guitarist play somewhere so you can have a hang.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Does it ever bother you that so much? music that's written for television uh just isn't available for people to to hear and enjoy
0: yeah it's it's true i mean there's a lot i mean um, the guy the guys are putting together cds of our stuff all the time but i also yeah. think they're putting together cds of uh, of other stuff and it's, it's fun to listen to sometimes go for a little drive and yeah street racing along.
1: I mean, Star Trek is unique in that I think there are efforts being made to put out a large chunk of the music because there's a there's a demand for it. and you know people yeah. people will pick it up. But I mean, it's still just a drop in the bucket. I mean, you wrote like you said, several hundred episodes worth of music, you know, only a small yeah. fraction of those are available on CD or or for download to listen to. I mean, it's got to right. be it's got to be a little bit frustrating that so much work has been created. And it's just it's not out there on its own to be enjoyed, you know. You, you we've got to go back and find those find those MacGyvers or find those uh, you know, exactly. Dawson's, Dawson's Creek's.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, and a lot of it is uh, has to do with legalities. They have to kind of jump through hoops to do these things because of the musicians and all that stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it, it has its moments.
1: If you had to um, choose. One score, one thing that you've written that you think best exemplifies your career—that you would hold up and say to anybody, "This is the one thing of mine that I want you to hear." What would it be?
0: Um, probably that Nexus sequence. Yeah, one I was telling you about earlier because that was—I mean, that was a—it just—it was so—it just worked. And I—I I know it wasn't hip, but you know, <laughs> sometimes you just got to go old school. But that
1: was truly one of my favorites yeah I'm gonna go back yeah. and listen to that as soon as we get off the phone <laughs> okay <laughs> um finally, my last question, and then I will let you go um what is Star Trek music at its core?
0: hmm it's to me it's it's another actor on the stage you know when it's when it's done properly and, and it's played up loud enough so you can hear and it becomes it becomes another character, yeah. And it's, it's very seldom that we ever play against what we were seeing. You know, it, it always, the score kind of wrapped itself around the action and responded to it, you know, responded to what was being said or what was happening. And, um, you know, I mean, those days, sometimes I hear scores now, and I miss, I miss the coherence of what Ron and Jay and I used to do. Mm-hmm and uh you know but you know you go back to the lobby of the theater and say if you got a little uh, tequila thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> and off you go dennis thank you so much for your time this has just been a, such a pleasure
0: well thank you and and uh let just give everybody a big yo for me
1: So that was another one that i mean dennis mccarthy it's just it was so great to talk to him all of these guys it's it kind of blows my mind that really it's just four people who have been responsible for almost all of the music uh, on star trek on television i mean alexander courage did the original theme for the original series And a lot of that, as we talked about in these episodes, the music was tracked. So that just means that they recycled the music. They played the theme over and over again during the episode. Um, And there wasn't really one person who did a lot of the scoring for the original series. There's a whole bunch of people who came in and just sort of put put a different but familiar spin on the same few themes. Starting with uh, The Next Generation in in 87, until now, until 2018... It has really just been four people, four people who have been responsible for all of the music, the music that has shaped the way that we hear Star Trek, and that is just unreal, unreal to me, and no other franchise, I think, can touch that, with the exception of Star Wars and John Williams, but we're only talking about a handful of films there compared to hundreds and hundreds of episodes with Star Trek. So, again... I hope you enjoyed it. Come back next week. We're going to be talking to Ron Jones. The week after that, we're going to be talking to Jeff Russo. If you if you can't get enough Star Trek, then man oh man, are you in for some good stuff. And if you have not listened to Jay Chataway episode two up two weeks ago, go back, download it, take a uh, take a listen. You will not be sorry. I am always am Jamie. I'm at the Roarbots. The show is at the GBB Podcast. Thanks again for listening, hitting subscribe, and coming back week after week. I really appreciate it. Take care.